Let us draw near. Biblical worship and the warming of the soul. This is part four. I don't think in the 30, almost 36 years that I've been here, I have ever had a longer text. Um, but there's got to be worse things for a church than reading a whole bunch of scripture. The reason I'm doing it is because it's not a John 3.16 kind of text that everyone knows. And the points I want to make won't stick unless you see the context and where they come from. So we're going to read a lot of scripture in this morning's teaching, so um, buckle up, okay? 2 Samuel 6, 11 to 15, let me start here. The title is Worship, Establishing the Presence of the Lord, and, and there's a way we normally think of when we use those words, and it's not what I'm talking about, and I want to show you a more important way of establishing the presence of the Lord than just, I really, really sense his presence this morning. 2 Samuel 6, 11. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, quote, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened aminal. Yeah. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And so, Lord, we come again to your word, ancient words from another era that your Holy Spirit inspired. Blow the dust off them. Ignite them in our hearts with eternal truth, I pray. Amen. The title of this message certainly fits with the desire of David's heart at this point in his reign. David is, as we read that text, he's the new king over Judah. He was crowned king in 2 Samuel chapter 2, right after the death of Saul. Naturally, David wanted to do a good job. More than that, because he had a heart for God, David wanted to be a godly king. More than anything, he wanted to establish the presence of the Lord for his reign, his term. He had seen, witnessed, remember, the pride and ambition of Saul. He had been chased by Saul, hunted by Saul, and David wanted to be a different kind of king. He wanted to be a king after God's own heart. And he was wise enough to know that at that time, the central, visible representation of God was the Ark of the Covenant, it was a physical symbol of God's abiding with them. The commandments were in the ark. The mercy seat was on top of that ark. There were tokens of God's special presence as he delivered millions of his people from Egypt at the hand of Pharaoh. Those things were in the ark. And David knew he still had a lot of enemies to be delivered from. To his credit, David 
related that ongoing deliverance to God's presence among them. And God's presence, at least his manifest delivering presence, it was all related to Israel's worship. That's an important insight. David wasn't some charismatic fanatic. He just wanted to defeat his enemies. That's the whole reason David wanted that ark back in its rightful place in Judah. So David wasn't tying worship to some emotional stirring. He was tying worship to Judah's survival against her enemies. Saul hadn't cared much about the ark. He actually left the ark totally unattended and ignored in the house of Abinadab. You can read it. He left it there for 20 years and never even noticed it wasn't present. Didn't care. He never even bothered to send a delegation of troops to bring it home. So Saul... Saul is forever a picture of a man who who got so involved in pursuing his own ambitions as leader that the central, powerful place of worship and the presence of the Lord got marginalized in the lives of the people. I tried to make a mental note of that as I was working through this text. We won't actually get into this sixth chapter of 2 Samuel very much until two Sundays from now. I took the time to read it because it sets the stage for what I want to look at is what led up to that event of David bringing the ark back from the house of Obed-Edom. In other words, this is a prequel. What led up to that? To make sense of today's text, I need to go over some background, hence the long text that we're going to be reading. We need to go back in time to the final years of the reign of King Saul, okay? So rewind now from our morning text. We need to go back in time to the final years of Saul, the capture of the Ark of the Lord by the Philistines, the collapse of the priesthood of Eli, and all of these events are recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7. Now, I want to study those background chapters today. And next, well, two weeks, we'll look at the 2 Samuel chapter 6 text. So do you see what we're doing? Here's here's David bringing the ark back from Obed-Edom to Jerusalem and the celebration. I want to look at what, how did the ark get there? What did Saul do so wrong? Point number one. Judah was defeated badly by the Philistines and failed to take time to discern the reason for her weakness. 2 Samuel 4, 1 and 2. The word of the Lord and the word of Samuel, sorry, came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, here's, here's, here's the part, Israel was defeated. 
by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Now those two verses give the bare-boned explanation of what happened. Judah took a whipping from the Philistines. And you can tell from the very next verse, the people were perplexed as to why. Why had the Lord allowed them to be so badly beaten? And you can also see how badly they misdiagnosed their real problem. You can see it in the third verse. And when the troops came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, so there's the question, right? Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? That's the burning question. And they've got it figured out. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant that it may come among us, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So they're defeated by the Philistines. The leaders, the elders, they get together and they say, why, why has this happened? Why were we so badly defeated? Oh, the Ark of the Covenant. We need to have the Ark of the Covenant with us. So at least they recognize that their defeat wasn't due just to the army of the Philistines. I mean, they know this much. They know that no enemy was a match for the God of Israel. Okay, so far, so good. And then right in the middle of the third verse, it seems as though a light goes on. Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh. Of course, that's, that's the problem. They lost the battle because they didn't have the Ark with them. So they'll go down to Shiloh, they'll get the Ark, and then surely God will trample the Philistines under their feet. Only there's a problem. That wasn't the issue at all. They didn't lose the battle with the Philistines because they didn't take the ark with them. There was a different reason for their weakness. And the text actually describes it for us in detail. We're going to look at verses 12 through 17. Eli, Eli's the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. That is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. 15. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said, let them burn the fat first. That was the biblical command, by the way. Let them build the fat first and then take as much as you wish. He would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. 17, thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Eli was the priest. His sons ministered with him. 
So in other words, these men were in charge of the worship of the people. But the worship of the priesthood, and then consequently of the people, it was corrupt. It wasn't, it wasn't done the way God had commanded it to be done. Underline that sentence in your mind. Remember them. They're still worshiping, but not according to instruction. That's a very important point, because... Most North American Christians, as a result of growing up in democracies, we have a deeply embedded sense that how we worship, as long as we do, how we worship is entirely up to us. It just seems fair. It just seems so right. But, but there's a problem with it. That is that you won't find it anywhere in the Scriptures. Old Testament or New Testament, you won't find that anywhere in the Scriptures. Now, look at God's response to this corruption of worship. 1 Samuel 2, 27. This is a long passage. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense and wear the ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest part of every offering of my people Israel? And therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, quote, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Do you realize what you're reading here? God breaking a promise. I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, far be it from me. What's going on? For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Did you know that verse was in your Bible? Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. And then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of man. Man, that's a visit from the Lord you'd never forget. Behold the issue of worship here. We're talking about worship. Because the people were corrupt in the way they worshiped the Lord, they became powerless 
in all other areas of life. Now, like most of us, they weren't very quick to put those two things together. What does a piece of boiled meat in a pot have to do with defeating the Philistines, right? How, how can those two things be related? You can, you can rephrase that worship question a thousand different ways. Let me help you. What does going to God's house regularly have to do with God blessing your marriage? Are you seeing it? What does Bible study have to do with victory in the battle with temptation? What does, we just did it, what does bringing my offering to the Lord in worship, what does that have to do with my victory over pornography? What does a piece of meat in a boiling pot have to do with defeating the Philistines? Everybody get what I'm saying here? The problem is in connecting the dots. The dots that don't look like they connect. But they do. And the Lord answers those questions very specifically in one of the great life verses in the entire Bible. 1 Samuel 2, the last part of verse 30. The Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me will I honor. Those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. I wonder how many people will gather in churches all across Canada today and will call out to the Lord with eyes closed and hands raised and a worship band playing, calling out to the Lord to meet their need only to be lightly esteemed by God. Is, is that not a relevant question? Is there anything that could be more important? I wonder how many people will cry out to God about their wayward teenager, never remembering the loose habits of worship that they established in the home years ago, I wonder how many people will cry out for deliverance from temptation and binding habit, never thinking about the fact that they scatter off to one church after another and never read their Bible at home. I wonder how many people will pray for answered prayer and never even consider the fact that they've been robbing God with tithes and offerings. Those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. It's in the book. Let me tell you how I heard that verse. Here's how I heard that verse quoted to me by my mother, and I would bet 50 times. It would work like this. All through school, you would get busy doing stuff all week, and then there'd be a big exam coming up on Monday. And we would say, well, we, we, can't, we can't go to church. I've got an exam, and I have to stay home and study. And mom, it was funny, not my dad, mom would come and she would say, you know, you had all day Saturday. And you had all sorts of evenings when you were doing all sorts of things. You're not going to stay home from church now at the last minute to study for that exam. And then she'd say, those who honor me, will I honor? 
and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. I never knew where it was found, but I trusted that she wasn't just making it up. Do you see the point, though? People never think those battles and the winning of those battles, they never link it with faithfulness and obedience in worship. Remember that lesson all your life, especially if you're here and you're under 35. Remember that lesson all your life before you form habits of carelessness. Nothing determines the direction and success of all of your life like honoring the Lord with a sincere and obedient heart of worship. And all God's people said. Relates to the second point. Oh, it took way too long. Point number two. Judah believed that taking the ark into battle with them would guarantee victory over their enemies. There's a longer text, and I'm just going to highlight a first part of it. First Samuel 4, we're going to... It would go right to verse 10, but let me just highlight these two verses. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us, and it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And so the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned in the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli. Remember how wicked they were? Hophni and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what, what, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought. And then this surprise, and Israel was defeated. <laughs> what? The Philistines fought, Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Got to keep all these pieces together now. We're covering a lot of stuff here. Remember the real cause of Judah's failure from the previous point, their corruption in worship with Eli and his sons. She was disobedient to the call of the Lord to honor the Lord and worship. The solution wasn't getting the ark onto the battlefield. The solution was to forsake disobedience and to start honoring the Lord. This lesson is timeless. Uh, I can never... I can never use the past history of a walk with God to compensate for present neglect in honoring him. The ark of the Lord couldn't be used like a lucky rabbit's foot. Let's just get the ark. 
couldn't be used as a lucky rabbit's foot to ward off evil and to bring God's blessing. God doesn't deal in superstition. He deals in obedience and worship from pure hearts. And so you can read the rest of chapter 4. As a result of their spiritual failure, here's what happened. The Philistines won. The ark of the Lord was taken into captivity by the Philistines. And there's this graphic lesson that nothing else in our walk with the Lord will sustain its power, life, and fruitfulness without integrity of heart and purity of worship. David had a big army. Listen, there was no external reason for Israel to be defeated by the Philistines. There was no external reason. She had more military might, more soldiers, more presence than the Philistines. There was no external reason for her defeat. And military strategists couldn't solve the problem. That's because it was a worship failure. And they couldn't connect the dots. Three. The presence of God is a constant source of irritation to those who don't honor him. So what happened when the Philistines took the ark? 1 Samuel 5. When the Philistines, verse 1, captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon. That's another one of their gods. And set it up beside Dagon. Ark of the Covenant, statue of Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon, this statue, had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And so they took Dagon and put it back up there. There, it must have fallen over. Four. When they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk was left. Okay, so this isn't an accident. Five. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us. Get it out of here. For his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent, gathered all the lords of the Philistines. Now they have a meeting. What what are we going to do with this ark? They answered, let the ark of of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of God to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered all of the lords of the Philistines. Big powwow. Send away the ark of the God of Israel. Let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. First Ashdod, and then Gath, 
the ark causes nothing but trouble and pain in the Philistine camp. So the presence of God, be careful about praying for God's presence. The presence of God had become a curse instead of a blessing because the people weren't honoring the Lord. Everybody get that? If you're not honoring the Lord, the last thing you want to pray for is his presence. What you want to pray for is his absence. Opposing God's will doesn't somehow chase his presence out of this world. It's his world. He made it. He rules it. Opposing his known will in any area of your life doesn't push him out of the universe. It just sets everything about your life against the grain of his world. And you'll be the one getting splinters. Nothing in the world can fix that arrangement except humility, confession, repentance. At this point, the Philistines get rid of the Ark of the Lord. I mean, you'll, we didn't read it, but in chapter 6, they put it on a cart pulled by two, two cows. We'll remember that for next teaching. And without any help or prompting, these animals immediately made a beeline to the border of Israel. Because of Saul's insensitivity to the presence of the Lord, the ark comes with the cart and goes to the house of Abinadab on the way home. And it stays there, 1 Samuel 7, it stays there for 20 years. 20 years. Saul doesn't even miss it. The, the, the people had ignored true worship of God for so long that they didn't notice there was anything missing. Okay, now we're almost done. You know what I get from that? And it relates to Cedarview. You can get used, you can get used to doing religious things without God. Oh, church. You can get used to doing religious things. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday without God. The people in Israel, it hadn't, it's not that they hadn't been worshiping. They had. For 20 years, they left the ark where it was and nobody even thought about it. And they just got used to doing stuff that way. It can start to feel normal. You simply get consumed by other things. People who once craved his presence, they start to look fanatical and ridiculous. And you start orienting your life after your own patterns. So, this background study, that's what we looked at today. Before David goes to Abinadab, that was our opening text, and brings the ark back. It closes with the end of Saul's reign. What started out so well and so badly, and just as the ark wasn't deemed important enough to bring back to Shiloh, Saul couldn't maintain the glory of God in his own heart, and he couldn't maintain God's reign and presence in Israel. And so here's the take-home. Worship has to do with life. 
Remember Isaiah 6? His throne. His throne is honored and remembered. And then there's no sacrifice. Remember Mary spilled out for the Lord. And then today's text, worship practice on God's terms has so much more to do with than just an emotional lift and an inward stirring. What does a piece of meat boiling in a pot have to do with defeating the Philistines? Everything. And I don't know what your battle is or what's going on in your life now, but I know this. If you focus your attention directly on it and ignore the Lord, you're setting yourself up for failure. And purity of worship, both here and in life, is the surest way to, with that center, to organize all the other spheres of your life under God's protection, care, and blessing. Now, once said, yes, Lord, we really mean that, amen. That, yes, Lord, that is really true, and yes, Lord, I, I need to remember that. Is that what you meant when you said amen? Okay, okay.